innocence, my guilt, and now my inadequacy? Because <laughs> I know what it means to walk along the lonely street of dreams. <laughs> and here's a cold on my own. Going down, down the only road I've ever known. <laughs> like a drifter, I was born to walk alone. Hey, Rick! <laughs> I ain't wasting no more time, but here I go again. Okay, this is too much. Your subconscious thought you needed some wisdom. We do whiskey, not wisdom. <laughs> okay, fine. And I made up my mind. I am wasting no more time. Show off. Here I go again. Here I go again. Here I go again. Here I go. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Physical Kids Weekly. I'm Clara. And I'm Danny. And today we're talking about episode 410, All That Hard Glossy Armor, the musical episode written by John McNamara and Mike Moore. Now, we'd originally planned to have Summer Bischel join us to talk about this episode, but something came up Wednesday night and we had to cancel. The unfortunate thing about doing this kind of thing as a hobby is that sometimes life gets in the way and you don't get to do something you really love, no matter how exciting it is or how great an opportunity it is. So before we start on what is now a solo episode, we just want to thank Summer for setting aside the time to talk to us and thank our listeners for joining us anyway. We still have a great show planned for you, though, and as usual, Clara is going to kick us off with a summary of this week's episode. Clara? 
Yeah, so this week we follow Margot as she wanders the Lorien Desert in search of the Foremost, a leader who's said to possess mythical weapons that can exercise foreign spirits. Desperate for water after days of traveling, Margot seeks aid from her birthright lizard and gets musical hallucinations that lead her right where she needs to be. The Foremost tells her she must collect a sack full of black grains of sand that can be used to forge her own weapons, but when she succeeds, she learns that he was pranking her the whole time. Enraged, she kills the Foremost, takes his axes, and reveals the lies that kept him in power and kept the woman he ruled over subservient. Oh, and while all this is happening, Julia, Quentin, and Penny23 try to save Enyelias and prevent the monster from reconstructing his sister's body. Unsuccessfully. Yikes! So, Danny, what did you think? I thought it was an amazing episode, but I will <laughs> correct you. She does not actually kill the foremost. She, oh, like, that's true. stuns him. Yes. <laughs> I believe she kills the foremost in the books, though. <laughs> <laughs> See, it's just that book knowledge getting all mixed up in there. <laughs> yeah. It happens. Yeah. Um, but it was a great episode. Um, I had a damn good time. <laughs> I agree. And there's just, you know, there's so much that I loved about this episode. Um, I think, obviously, I liked the music. I think there's a ton that was uh, really great and really fun. I loved all the costuming. I love just the fact that we're getting Janet slash Margot in the desert. Finally, I've been waiting for it, I feel like, my whole life. But really, it's only been, like, four years. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, it's just, it's uh, it's delightful. I'm glad we're finally in this moment. And um, before we get too far in, I wanted to ask you what you thought of the music. I am, will admit that I was slightly disappointed that there was really no female power ballads in there. Mm-hmm. No heart, really no hoping, Pat Benatar. Yeah, I was really hoping for... A moment like that. I mean, it could have been because I'm pretty sure Summers admitted openly that she's not the greatest singer and she's not that comfortable. So, well, and she's definitely like I think she does a great job with this song, but she's also definitely an alto and like a low mm-hmm. alto, so she might do better in a male range. Yeah, so that could have been why they chose that route, um, just to make sure that she's comfortable. And not have to, like, replace her with someone else. Um, I, you know, I thought about that, actually. And because, you know, originally I was disappointed, too. Um, But I think there's something really appropriate about the fact that they gender swapped the songs that Margot and Elliot sing. So the one he sings is Don't Get Me Wrong by The Pretenders. And their lead singer is female. And I think that's really cool because both Margot and Elliot tend to subvert gender norms. For Elliot, yeah. I mean, I think we see this in a lot of ways for Elliot, but like the way he way he dresses and moves definitely is uh, a little bit like gender subversive, and especially in this episode. And for Margot, I think it's mostly about the way that she wields her power. She's not gentle or delicate or maternal. She's tough. Um I also think, like, in the book, Janet definitely views herself as one of the guys. And so there's something really cool about, like, swapping that. That, Yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm not a big fan of that Norris Barkley song they chose. Which one was the the last one, right? That was the second to last one. Okay. I don't remember what it's called. It's like a storm coming or something like that. Uh Uh-huh. That's the one that I think all of them sing. Well, they also like, all sing here. All I go of them, when they actually come, like, for the 10 
Like all the whole fucking cast was in it for like two seconds. For the two seconds that like Quentin and Julia and everyone else shows up, it's that other song. It's like Storms Coming or something. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not a big fan of that song, particularly. Um, I did really like the like lullaby-ish song at the end, Mm. though. Mm. It was cut deep. (laughs) Um, Yeah, what was the one at the end? Man, I, I only like the first two are the ones that really stuck for me. It's like it's like some like lullaby from like the 1800s or something oh no no i know exactly what you're talking about sorry it's a beautiful dreamer yeah 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 i loved that thread going through that um funny story after i saw this episode i was like humming that in my head for a few days and i think it was like the day (laughs) after we got it the day after we got it i got up early and it was like 7 a.m and i was wandering around the house singing that and all of a sudden i hear lanier from the bedroom going you have to stop. You sound like a ghost. <laughs> I really enjoyed that. I was definitely like humming that song for a couple days as well. Yeah. Um, I really love that they chose Here I Go Again as Margot's power ballad. And not, ju- not just because I guessed it. Um, <laughs> but I think like the reason I was able to guess it is because it's such a perfect song for for this scene, right? I was when I was trying to find trying to figure out what they might use, I spent a lot of time thinking about how in the books Janet talks about her time in the desert, what she experienced while she was there, what it meant to her and how she came out of it. And the things that really stuck out to me were that like first of all, Janet is okay with being on her own. She's capable mm-hmm. of being lonely or alone without being lonely. She's very independent. And so right, we couldn't have a song about being alone that is sad. It would have to be something that's kind of triumphant and like feeling herself, right? True. And then the task that she gets set to collect this like sack of only black grains of sand, that's meant to break her down and take it apart. But it, you know, it sort of does break her down. But in the end, really what it does is make her more sure of herself, more like even more confident and, you know, ready to kick ass. Um, And so I think this captures her will and that kind of triumph of the spirit really, really well. Mm -hmm. Also, it just makes for great TV. Like, this is such a fun moment to, like, cinematically. Yeah, it was... I have an interesting relationship with the song Here I Go Again, so I just thought it was interesting to hear. Wait, Um, what is your interesting relationship with it? (laughs) I just love... I used to just love playing that song on rock band, but I was awful at it. Um, (laughs) I don't have the range at all for that song. So whenever I play a song on like, whether it be like karaoke or like rock band or um, I used to be obsessed with this, this game called sing star, which is like a competition style karaoke game. Uh Um, Anytime I play a song like that, I just have this like way of singing it kind of in a joking way because Uh I can't sing well when it comes to, ballads uh-huh so i'll like make my voice like really low uh-huh and uh-huh. like <laughs> and sing it i i think my singing voice would be very more similar to like the way josh sings the song uh-huh, uh-huh. or trevor yeah Even so that kind of like growly <laughs> growly rock vibe yeah <laughs> i actually have an interesting relationship with the song too which i don't know if i told you about this danny but um have you ever wondered where my twitter screen name came from no. Okay. Well, 
I mean, I probably have, but... <laughs> Not in a while. <laughs> um, mm. So my Twitter screen name is the name that I chose for uh, the character I created when I was, like, 14 and doing a lot of, like, online role-playing in chat rooms. Uh, mm-hmm. Way back in the day when, like, AOL chat rooms and Yahoo chat rooms were, like, the hot new thing. Um mm-hmm. And Here I Go Again was my character's theme song. And she was, as you might expect, a lot like Margot, but I think, like, maybe more introverted. Like, kind of a blend of of Margot and Julia. So, mm. <laughs> I have a personal nice. relationship with this song as well. And it's it's why I always feel like I, even though I'm not, I don't think I'm a White Snake fan in general, it's why, like, this particular song. To me, to me, White Snake is... This is like their one hit wonder in my mind because I don't know anything else by them. Well, it's, that's why it's so funny yeah. to me that like we, we've gotten all these guesses from people and so far no one has guessed it. Um, but somebody somebody guessed a different White Snake song and in my in my head I was like, wait, there's another White Snake song that people know. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> I, I thought that same thing. I was like, oh, they got so close, but <laughs> they're gonna kick themselves when they find out. They probably will. And I think a lot of people will, especially since you pointed out to me that they basically kind of gave like a monumental hint to it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Just like that. Margo's on her own again. (laughs) Yep. It was pretty good. Um, That song, though, also reminds me of there's this really like. I think it's one of my favorites, but it's also a really awful movie. It's from, like, the early 2000s. It's called Fired Up. I don't even know that. And it's this movie about these two guys who (laughs) join the cheerleading squad. I knew it was going to be a cheerleading movie with that title. So they join the cheerleading squad to hook up with chicks. And it has that one guy, um, Eric Christian Olsen, in it who's, like, just a ridiculous actor. Um, he played the like cocky blonde guy in Not Another Team movie, and <laughs> has basically played the same character in everything since. He's definitely like one of those. It is the dumbest movie, but also <laughs> like the most amazing movie at the same time. Like it's just got all of these one-liners, and there's this part in it where they like sing "Here I Go Again." So uh-huh. like I always think of that movie. It's a great but awful movie. Like I recommend it highly. Those are and my favorites. I definitely recommend it as like a drinking game if anyone wants to like do it that way. Um. <laughs> All right. Uh, on that note, <laughs> yeah. um, uh, I think we have maybe, we, or rather, I think we could talk about the music forever, but I think this is a good time to talk about the plot. So what did you oh, think yeah. of the way <laughs> the plot with the foremost played out in the episode with Margot realizing that he was using fear of these powerful female spirits to keep the women in his camp? obedient and compliant um I liked it like I feel like overall the story was quite different from the story we got in the books yeah but but I feel like that's okay like I think they made it their own Mm -hmm. while still telling like a similar story uh the only thing I'm kind of slightly salty is is they don't seem to be ice axes but that's okay (laughs) Well, they so you remember that in the last episode, um, Josh call Josh says that they're called ice axes, and he says he assumes that's artistic license. Mm. 
So I think that's how they're handling that, just so they don't have to like waste their entire CGI budget <laughs> on those for the rest of the season. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, they might have wasted a lot of budget just on this episode alone. Yeah, well, it's not wasted. Let's let let's be clear. <laughs> true. Um, I have yeah. really been loving the way that Margot's fairy eye keeps cropping up and coming into play in the season. And it feels mm-hmm. especially appropriate in this episode where it's revealing to her an injustice that she can correct. Like the whole, yeah, yeah, like the, the fairy queen's whole thing was that she was, she was, um, the sort of fierce, fierce mother hen and also like fierce protector of her fierce protector of her people and um someone who really cared about rectifying that injustice right like her people had been held slaves and so I think there's something really cool about part of the power that she passes to Margot being the ability to pick up on those injustices I like it because it's like the ability to it seems to be the ability to see the unseen because and like the other veil like the other side yeah um she seems to have the ability to see things that other people can't see, like almost like a supernatural. Um, and like, let's see, let's take it back to the episode where she first sees the monster kill God for the first time. Yeah, She sees something that no one else can see, like in that that heart is so bright or like the stone. It yeah, looks like a yeah. heart at first, but it's a stone is so bright. And it like kind of like hurts her. Like, yeah, she said it was like almost. blinding her or something. Yeah. So that'll be interesting, and I'm sure that, like, will also, plot point will come back into play as well. But I like that she can see the unseen because not only does it explain, like, that she can see this demon, but it's, like, almost like she can see, like, the mistreating of women that other people can't see as well. It's like a She can see the truth behind it. Yeah. yeah, the truth. Yeah, and it you know it actually makes me think of some of the broader things they've been doing this season, right? Like if you go back to is it, it's three or sorry to four oh seven to the um, the one with the with Katie and Zelda and and Fen, the one with the side characters, the side effect. That's what it's called. Um, mm-hmm. Right, like a lot of what they've been trying to do this season is reveal pieces of the puzzle that normally get hidden. And it's kind of nice mm-hmm. that they're using, like, they're using the the fairy eye was always going to show Margot things that other people couldn't see. But it's nice that it's being used in this way that is not, like, not just literally things that other people can't see, but there's a metaphorical and sort of moral sense to that as well. Yeah, the fairy eye itself basically gives her the ability to see other things and like the fairies themselves couldn't be seen unless they wanted you to see them so yeah yeah it's all about changing your perspective i wonder if we'll ever see the fairies again i hope so i really liked that plot last season and it's right especially we'll talk about this a little bit more later but i feel like there have been a lot of plots like that in the magicians not just last season, but the season two, where you get a character or a set of characters who seem evil and they turn out not to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like a lot more going on. They love to do that. Yeah. I wonder <laughs> if that's another thing that Margot's fairy eye will let her see. Potentially. Yeah. So tell me what you thought of Margot's backstory um, in this episode, because it is different from what we see in the books. Do you want to describe that difference? Well, 
I don't have it on hand. Okay, well, I'll, I'll do that. Yeah. <laughs> so in the right in the books, um, it's kind of like a poor little rich girl thing, right? Yeah. Janet's story about her dad is that she was like shipped off to boarding school basically because her parents didn't want to deal with her. Um, and that her dad forgot to pick her up this one time. And so she was just like waiting and waiting and waiting. And finally the, I, I don't know if there were nuns. I don't, I feel like it was a Catholic school, but that might just be my wonky memory. Um, come in and like take pity on her and feed her dinner. Um, and so much of her rage is about like in the book, so much of her rage is about, um, kind of not being not mattering to her parents and in the show right like in this episode what we see is really different it's that she's kind of is the apple of her dad's eye she's like daddy's little princess but as soon as she grows into a woman and like takes ownership over her sexuality and uh starts to express wants and desires of her own that aren't what he imagined for her that's the point when he's like he starts to feel distant from her and move away from her. So there's more of a, like, Madonna whore thing going on. Mm, yeah, that's true. I think that the one that they reveal in the show, I feel like it does work better for yeah. for Margot yeah. than Janet's backstory. Yeah. I think, I wonder, do you think that's because Margot is a bigger character in the show than Janet is in the books? Probably. I mean, I just feel like we know her a lot better. Like, I know Margot so much better than I know Janet. Yeah. And to keep her sympathetic, she kind of has to, like, there has to be more to it than just she was ignored. Yeah. It also fits in well with the feminist themes of this episode and of the season more generally. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> like just having her, like having that whole Madonna whore contrast is, I think, a really important thing to show how she was traumatized by what is, in some ways, a relatively s- small slight <laughs> from a feminist perspective. Like, it, or it, not small, but it's like the kind of thing that's baked into the background, right? Like, this is just part of living and growing up in a world like this is that you is that men have these expectations of you and when you don't fulfill them they are unhappy but it's for me I I found it really profound to have that be like the core of her trauma that this experience of the the first man that she cared about her father um letting her go and not and like not giving a shit about her the second he realized she was quote-unquote impure yeah, I would like to hear more. I feel like she's barely scratching the surface in this episode. Yeah, we had a lot of listener questions um, when we thought we were going to do this episode with Summer around her backstory. And, I mean, it's a small thing in the book, too, right? Like, we don't get very much of Janet's backstory either. But um, I really do hope that we get to see more of who Margot was as the show progresses. Yeah, I'd like to see her open up to, like... Josh. Maybe, like, Josh. Or even Elliot. Like, I feel like even though her and Elliot are, like, best friends, I feel like they still don't know probably everything about each other. Yeah. Or maybe it could be Fen. She and Fen, they're getting they're getting friendly. <laughs> they are. <laughs> uh, 
Um, I am still, by the way, so into the idea of a body swap episode between Margot and Finn. I feel like that's just such the perfect matchup because they're so different. That would be fun. If they did a body swap, would you want, like, everybody to body swap? No, 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 no. I just want the two of them to body swap. And I, like, I kind of like the Freaky Friday kind of idea where they can't let on. (laughs) I would also, if I saw a body swap episode, I think Quentin and Penny would be hilarious yeah that's another good one like i feel like they have to be they have to be people who are both like two sides of the same coin and also who like have some kind of animosity toward each other for it to work yeah that's true in star trek there's this great episode um called tuvix which i think that was actually one of the ones that rick was in i'd have to go back and double check i think he might play tuvix which is the um the combo one uh, so there are these two characters, Tuvok, who is a Vulcan and like super buttoned up and Neelix, who, um, is the opposite of that. He's like very outgoing and gregarious and everyone is kind of like a little bit annoyed by him because he's the token extrovert. Um, <laughs> and, uh, he's also like kind of slovenly and whatever else. And, um, there's a transporter accident that causes them to have like a combined body, um, that mm-hmm. houses both of their consciousnesses. And, uh, it's, it does not go well. <laughs> um okay back to the episode um why don't we talk about the other storyline we want to make sure we get that too what did you think of angus slash and elias um i was really excited to see him because like when i was watching the episode before they they peek at him for like a second it's the first time you finally see the character right in that sacrifice scene yeah in the sacrifice scene and just the fact that it is the same guy that plays Renly Baratheon and <laughs> and Charles Manson in, in Aquarius. What I, I just love that touch because I think he's such a good actor. But I I thought I, I thought he was creepy, but like in an interesting way. Like Yeah. I would like to know more about pretty much all of the gods, to be honest. Uh-huh. Um, so <laughs> as you know, I care a lot about the <laughs> mythology. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I loved it because he was zany. He was weird. He was different than the other gods. I like how they all have like their own mm-hmm. personality. Um, I really cracked up when he was like trying to figure out his like passcode kind of like thing. And oh I was yeah! Like, wow. Of course he would forget. <laughs> He's his like password. an old man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, Lanier commented to me when we were watching this that. Um, the scene beforehand, like when they when they go into Barry's and she takes them into the back room, we both had the same reaction, which was like, "Oh, this is going to be Mr. Robot now," because it looks so much like the set in the first season of Mr. Robot, the like abandoned Coney Island arcade. <laughs> oh, I I still haven't seen Mr. Robot. Oh, you should you should watch it. You would like it. It's Remy Malek at his finest. So <laughs> I've heard, I've heard <laughs> uh, about Angus. I know he's a trickster, and so, you know, I'm not supposed to trust him, but he was so skeezy, um, especially with Julia. Like, I found that whole lechy way that he was like, I could help you. It's like, don't, don't go, don't go through the door. Don't get in there. <laughs> I don't think Penny would have let her just no. having had that conversation with the monster 
in the episode previous because he saw how creepy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Elias was. Well, and I think that's the thing. Like in this episode and in the last episode, watching the the monster watch the sacrifice, I feel I'm starting to feel like the monster is not the bad guy in this arrangement. Um, I mean, yeah. obviously he... I mean, he's making really bad choices now, but... Right, but, like, he only has, like, half a brain right now, right? He's got some serious amnesia going on. He's basically a child with an adult's body and God's powers. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, yeah, like, that... What we saw last episode, plus this scene with Angus and Elias... It's making me also not just wonder about, like, is the monster maybe good, but it's also making me wonder about the moral status of the gods. Um, The whole Iris thing, too, where she was being, like, super douchey to Julia before she got all dead. Um, I felt like that's not the kind of thing that good people do. It felt like a power play more than anything else. Yeah, I always thought it was shady that she was saying that she had to let go of her mortal life, too. Like, even when we first saw her, I was just like, but why? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really good point. Like, why should Julia have to give up being, uh, give up her mortal life to be able to be a god? It seems like that is more a thing about Iris and the other gods than it is a thing about when it's clearly not, like, a thing, though, I mean, Bacchus literally hangs out with humans constantly. Yeah, yeah. So, and that's the thing, I like, mean, Bacchus also thought Iris was... Shady. Shady, <laughs> yeah. I think Bacchus is the only one that was probably, like, a decent god, it seems yeah. like. yeah. I mean, there might be other ones that we'll see over time. And, I mean, OLU doesn't seem like a douche, but... <laughs> <laughs> You're not so sure? she is douchey she's douchey in the way that she kind of let julia believe all these things that just weren't true you mean like like she knew what was going on with julia for so long and she only finally steps in when she's about to shoot her fucking son like no yeah that's fair that's a fair point um she definitely wasn't as helpful as she could have been uh i also hope that we get to learn more about hades sometime this season That'd be nice. Yeah, both because I would like to see that actor come back because he was so great. I don't know if we will see him this season. Maybe if we do, it would probably be like a cliffhanger, like season thing. Um, Because I feel like, I feel like season five will just be all about gods. It has to be right. Like, I've been thinking for a long time about why it is they got renewed immediately, like before the season started. And I think one, they must be doing something really risky. Um, near the end. Uh, and, and, you know, I mean, I've said I think Quentin will probably die. Even if that doesn't happen, I think whatever they're going to do is going to be big and risky and, like, a giant cliffhanger. Um, but the other thing is they must have had some idea, some really strong idea of where they're going and what they want to do. Um, yeah, like the I'm payoff sure for that it, risk. Like, can we please at least have, like, one more season? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine they didn't say please, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like y'all gonna regret it if we don't have one more season. <laughs> yes, <laughs> give us a season or else. Um, okay, so 
the other thing I want to talk about was, Danny, you have been saying online, you've been t- and like we've been talking about a lot, that you have been noticing a change in Quentin over the course of the season, and especially in this episode. And I just kind of wanted to ask you what you think is going on with him. I think that he is falling into a very, very deep depression. Yeah. Increasingly, in every episode, he just seems more detached and more, like, nihilistic. Like, he doesn't care what happens to him. Mm -hmm. Julia has to step in and be like, let me do this or let me, like, like, I'll get hurt. Like, you don't need to. Like, he doesn't care. Like, if he had put his hand in that vending machine thing, like, he could have died. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't care. Yeah, and it was only because Julia was like, dude, <laughs> it's definitely not going to hurt me that um, that he even let her do that, that he didn't. Mm-hmm. Why do you think he's getting so depressed now? Like, is it just brain chemistry or are there other, like, is it, all the shit that's going on in his life. I think it's everything that's going on. Uh, but, like, anybody with depression knows that just, like, you can't stay too happy for too long. Like, shit just hits the fan eventually. And, I mean, and you can feel like that without even events happening to trigger it. But I think it's just a matter of everything that's going on. Like a lot of his interactions with the monster are very negative and very like, yeah, I'm going to kill you if you don't do this. And like, yeah, I'm going to kill your friend if you don't do this. And it's just like, he's always just trying to get through the moment to help save Elliot. And like, I feel like he just thinks it's like, I feel like he's battling with him within himself of whether or not it's worth it. Yeah. I think, I think too, like in the books, it's in, especially in book one, right? Like there's a much cleaner arc of Quentin keeps thinking that like the next thing is going to be the thing that gives his life purpose. Mm -hmm. And especially in book one, right? Like he thinks magic being real is going to give his life, life purpose. And then he realizes like he can still fuck up and bad things can happen and he can, and it's not going to cure his depression. And then he thinks, okay, we're going to go to Fillory and that's going to be the thing that gives my life purpose. And then they get there and it's like way more fucked up than he imagines. And in the early parts of the, of the show, we didn't really see that as much. And I kind of feel like that's what we're getting now. Like he has hit this point where it was like bringing magic back didn't give his life meaning. In fact, it killed his dad. And um, saving Elliot is a thing that he really wants to do. But he's, you know, I think he's sort of coming face to face or like, yeah, he's sort of being forced to confront the fact that getting Elliot back is just going to return things to like a certain level of normal. It's not going to suddenly make him a hero and make him um feel better and the same thing with uh I think like he's also having to confront things about his relationship with Alice that he hasn't had to before like they just they were fine they were like just getting to a place where things were better between them before she destroyed the keys and it's been a it's been like straight cut off they've had no, they haven't talked about that. They haven't dealt with it at all. And so, like, we're seeing things that suggest that there might be a happy ending for Quentin, say, with Elliot. But 
I don't think that would be possible if he doesn't deal with his shit with Alice first mm-hmm. and like just confront some of these uh, and not just that, but like confront some of the other things that are part of his depression. There was like some hesitation at the end of the episode as to whether or not he like even wanted Julia to get her God powers back. Say what you mean about that. Like, like, I feel like he had this like hesitation in his voice, like kind of like, are you sure you want to? Or like, like kind of like, but also Hmm. at the same time, like do whatever you want, Julia. Like, I don't care. Where do you think that's coming from? Like, what would that hesitation be about? He doesn't want to lose her again. Hmm. Like, she's the only thing that's kind of tethering him. Yeah, like, he's the only thing she has, he has left because he refuses to see Alice as something in his life right now. Right, and Elliot's stuck in the monster. Yeah, and... yeah he's very withdrawn. Hmm. And just the fact that he sits away from everybody at the end of the episode and just kind of broods because he knows, like, this is it. This is, like, we're about get to our final confrontation with this monster we don't have time left yeah and i don't think he wants to lose julia but he doesn't feel like he has anyone else like he's never felt close to penny no (laughs) and this is an entirely new penny that he doesn't even know right and i think he likes margo but really his tie to margo is elliot yeah but margo hasn't shown up back yet yeah yeah um but i think even like i don't think that's gonna fix things when and if she does yeah he's not close to katie no <laughs> um and the only person the only other person that wants to talk to him would be alice and she actually gives him this look like she wants to talk to him but she knows she probably yeah. shouldn't yeah and i think like he needs to have that conversation they need to deal with that but even when they do that's not going to make him feel better it's just going to make him it's just going to mean that there's closure on that one item. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of people aren't liking the arc so far. A lot of people the are The Alice like, arc? or The Alice one, but like just the frustration with Quentin. And I don't know if they're necessarily pissed off that he's depressed again. But like some people don't like seeing it. And I think it's because it reminds them of themselves. And... Yeah. I mean, I don't know how many times I've been as low as Quentin is feeling, um, obviously for different, very different reasons, but, like, I think everyone's been there. And, like, I, I think I like that they're doing it because, like, that is depression. Like, it just comes back. Well, and speaking of things that, like, aren't going to fix you, right, like... I think a lot of the anger or frustration that we see from some fans is around the fact that we saw this moment between Elliot and Quentin, and they kind of want that to solve everything, to be like, if Quellit is endgame, then everything's going to be okay. But just like magic isn't going to solve all your problems and cure your depression, neither is a relationship. Like, you can uh, be yeah. super depressed in a relationship. I've been there all the time. <laughs> I'm I'm there all the time. Yeah. Like, and it sucks, though, because immediately people are like, or like, is your relationship okay? Yeah, and are sometimes you okay? even your partner ends up feeling that way, right? Like, Yeah, it's like, and it's just so hard to just be like, no, it's me. Like, I'm literally <laughs> the problem. Yeah. <laughs> My brain is telling me bad things about myself. Sorry. 
<laughs> the things that yeah. you're saying that are good are not fixing that. <laughs> and I know a lot of people also want to see a conversation between yeah. Quentin and like anybody else. And I just don't think they I just don't think most people will realize I'm like I think he's intentionally pushing people away. Yeah, absolutely. There and I don't think there have been moments where Julia wants to have a conversation with him, but he clearly doesn't want to. Yeah, that moment in um, oh, which episode is it? The one, the one where they were uh, trying to figure out where, where they were trying to figure out the Hecka thing when they t- go to talk to the mummy later, right? Like when they're sitting yeah. at that table beforehand, she is trying to have that conversation with him and to draw him out. And he just isn't having any of it. And she is the person who has known him longest, who has the deepest relationship with him of anyone, maybe save Alice, but like definitely the deepest relationship with him, deepest friendship with him. And if she can't get through. I think that's why she's staying so close to him, though. Like she's allowing him to have his space in, in not bugging him and trying to have a conversation with him constantly. But she's making sure she's pretty much around him yeah. for the most part. Yeah, she's on suicide watch, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um. So, I uh, the one more thing that I wanted to talk about before we move on to crackpot theories, which we definitely need to do, was um, I've also been really enjoying watching Julia. Like in contrast, it's. It's really cool to see Julia be in this like she's frustrated that she's not a god and not a human or whatever. But she mm-hmm. also kind of accepts it, right? Like she doesn't seem like it's driving her crazy. It's just this thing that is happening in her life that she would like to resolve. I think she's kind of I mean, she's a she's obsessed with it a little bit. Like I think she was obsessed with trying to figure out what she was. Yeah, but it's in a healthy way. Yeah, but she hasn't, like, now that she knows that, like, she can become a goddess again, I think she's just like, well, we'll get there. I think she knows that she'll get there. Yeah, you mean because, like, Anulias is kind of bringing up that it's a possibility? Or do you Mm -hmm. mean, like, from the dragon thing, I guess? From the dragon thing. I think she knows, like, you know, it's not my number one priority. Like, let's figure this shit out first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with that. Because I think, I feel like she knows, and but like it seems like at the end of the episode, she's like, "Well, if I see, if I pursue this and I seek this, there's a potential that we could, mm. we could get like, you know, ahead of this." Yeah. So her frustration is less with kind of resolving it for herself, and more with, "Hey, this seems like something that could be useful. I wish we could sort it out so that we could use it." Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Is it crackpot theory time? I think so. All right. So I've been promising a new crackpot theory for like an episode and a half now. Um, and here, roughly, it is. I think that the monster's sister might be the primordial Mesopotamian goddess of chaos, Tiamat. And as I'm going to lay this out, I just want to like say up front that superficially, I don't think this fits the facts as well as the Osiris and Isis theory did, at least before... Um, we saw in the last episode that it wasn't the monster's body he was trying to put back together. But I think it's really interesting and sort of worth delving into anyway. So, briefly, the Tiamat myth. Tiamat and her consort or lover or whatever, Abzu, are the only gods that predate the creation of the universe in the sort of Mesopotamian um, 
canon. So they're super old gods, and they beget all sorts of new gods who beget even more gods, and all these new gods start making, like, a ton of noise. And basically, Abzu just gets really, really annoyed by them. He's like, oh, these young whippersnappers, get off my lawn! So (laughs) he decides he's going to kill them. And um, I believe that, like, they have some kind of vizier who also is like, yeah, yeah, you should kill them. And Tiamat is like, no, what are you talking about? These are, like, our children and grandchildren. You can't just kill them because they're being noisy. That's what babies do. So... She decides to go and warn them. And the children and grandchildren are like, oh, he's going to kill us? Uh Uh-uh. So they band together and they're like, we'll kill him first. Which Tiamat is not into either. She's like, no, no. I told you this so you could protect yourselves, not so that you could, like, kill my husband. So after they kill him, she gets really pissed off, and she flies into this, like, all-consuming rage and starts recruiting an army of her allies, which does include some of her children. And one of them is uh, Kingu, who she sort of appoints as her captain-slash-supreme deity, and we'll come back to that a little bit later. She also creates a whole bunch of monsters to fight along her side, including 11 dragons. So she is, like, the OG mother of dragons, which I really, really love and which I feel like fits very nicely into the mythology that we've seen on the show so far. Um, And those, yeah, those monsters fight alongside her. The younger gods are like, okay, well, we need someone to go talk to her. And there's like two people that they pick up front and those two are like, no, we are quaking in our boots. We're not going to go talk to Tiama. Mom is scary. Um, (laughs) And the third one (laughs) is this dude, Lord Marduk. And he's like, okay, I'll do it. But you have to agree that if I succeed, I am the supreme god among us all. And y'all have to like listen to me and do what I say. So they agree, and he goes to confront her, but of course he can't stop himself, so instead of just confronting her, he slices her body in half and uses one half to create the sky and the other to create the earth. And then they also capture and kill her, the sort of captain who she has appointed, um, Kingu, and they mix his blood with clay to form man. And the, like, freakiest, most fucked up part of all this is that they don't create man because they're like, we should have man. They create man because they're like, we should have worshipers and uh, worshipers who will do anything for us and be our slaves. So like, that's the entire point of them creating man. So um, that's all cool and everything, but how does it relate (laughs) to our show? Very good question. Glad you asked. (laughs) Um, Tiamat and Abzu are about as old as old gods can get. And you know, you and I have been talking a lot about how we think there might be some kind of showdown between the old and new gods like there was in the books. Mm-hmm. We also think that we're likely to see the end of Fillory or something equally destructive. And I guess for me, like, one of the cool things is that if she's if she's the god of chaos and killing her allowed the sort of younger gods to create order and to create earth in the universe, then it kind of stands to reason that restoring her might not be such a good thing. It could be, well, chaotic. Mm-hmm. There's for the for like figuring out who the monster was, that's a much harder thing to do. Abzu and uh, Tiamat are not brother and sister, at least as far as we know. I mean, it wouldn't be too far of a stretch because they were created at the same time. But I don't think it really makes sense for Abzu to be the monster because I, for a couple of reasons, I don't think it makes sense for him to die first. And it's just not clear to me that Abzu gives enough of a shit to like 
try to bring her back to life. The person who yeah. does, though, is probably Kingu. He's not her brother. He's, like, one of her issue somewhere down the line. But, you know, he's, he's uh, in a lot of ways, sort of viewed as her servant. And the fact that he's implicated in the creation of humanity also seems really important from a narrative perspective. So, like, he's loyal to her. He's relevant in the, like, storyline, and I think he'd be pretty keen to bring her back to life. But I think the thing that I get most excited about in this myth um, is that Tiamat is all things considered a pretty sympathetic character. And, like, in that last episode where we saw the monster sister being sacrificed, like, that was a really fucked up scene, right? Like, (laughs) Enyolias was not cool in it, and... The fact that, like, the other gods were willing to, like, sacrifice this pathetic-looking, in that scene, young girl to Enyolias in order to, like, get whatever it is that they wanted out of the situation. Mm -hmm. That makes me think, again, that, like, maybe the monster and his sister are not the bad guys. And so having someone who is sympathetic, I think, would be good. Also, like, part of the reason she's sympathetic in the myth is because there's a lot of, so there's a lot of different interpretations of it, but a lot of the early ones, especially, say that Tiamat's children, you know, they didn't have to kill her, right? Like, Lord Marduk was tasked with confronting her, but that didn't mean that she had to die. And so a lot of those interpretations basically say Marduk was hungry for power, and he didn't like, and like neither he nor his brothers liked the fact that there was this super, like, all powerful female goddess who was deciding their fate. So it wasn't about protecting themselves as much as it was taking away her power because essentially she was feminine. And so in a lot of those early interpretations, people see the destruction of Tiamat as the story of the formation of the first patriarchy. And given what we saw of the sacrifice of the monster sister in the episode, all the like skeezy ways that Enyolias was behaving towards Julia in this one, and just like all of the themes that we have around like girl power and feminism, I think the idea that um, the show might be playing with something like this that is really like really fruitful ground for a sort of discussion of feminism and that the Scooby gang might find out that they've like been on the wrong side the whole time and like have to think about what their like what their alliances and allegiances mean and like what it might mean for them to have magic in that (laughs) dimension that seems really appealing to me like a really great sandbox yeah I think I mean, I think they're already kind of starting to figure that out. I don't think that they figured out that necessarily like the monster that they've been dealing with is not all bad. Yeah. But I think that they know by now that the gods are not yeah. good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I agree with that. I think there's been enough evidence that the gods are fairly skeezy. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and the other thing that I forgot to say again is just dragons, right? Like, dragons. <laughs> well, the dragons are, like, a really big deal in the books, too. They like, are, yeah. We don't see them as often as we see them in the show. Um, but they are a big thing in... They're the ones that take down the gods, I believe. Right, The dragons. Right. Or at least and they're part of Quentin that. becomes a dragon. Right. And kills right. a god. And I think, like... 
the fact that in the show, it's a dragon, like, through her herald, through Harold, her herald, um, <laughs> that is like, Julia, you got to get your shit together and be a goddess again, right? I think that is maybe prescient of this this fight where the dragons are not going to be on the same side as the other gods we've seen. Yeah, I definitely don't think so. The dragons are... I think the dragons want magic mm-hmm. around and for other people. I mean, they're not necessarily always nice to people, but they I feel like they're like gatekeepers and like... Yeah, well, and I think what I am kind of seeing and getting at is that maybe the new gods are really territorial of their magic, right? They're, and that's mm-hmm. sort of the way that they treat everyone, right? Like, they treat humans as kind of toys. Yeah, which would fit with the slave thing. Yeah, exactly. And the dragons are not, as you said, they're not always nice to humans, but they don't treat them with the same kind of disrespect. And I could imagine them, uh, like, if if you view this as, like, a kind of justice, like, rectifying an injustice thing, I could imagine the dragons being on the side of someone who whose power was usurped or, like, someone who had been maybe guarding magic in some capacity and had that taken away from them. Um, I could imagine them doing that. So I think, like, the big question for me is... If the old gods are, like, the the good ones, if the old gods and the dragons are the good ones in this, what does that mean for humans and magic? Yeah. And I think, honestly, like, this kind of sets it up in a way to start, whether it be this season or next season, the Magician's Land storyline of Fillory dying yeah. and Quentin saving it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because... Quentin becomes a god shortly and restores Fillory. And I'm curious if, like, those stones might be the reason he becomes Mm. a god. That's a really interesting theory. Let us, yeah, let's keep exploring that as the season unfolds. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, so that was my crackpot theory. But if memory serves, you recently had a crackpot (laughs) theory of your own that I forgot to mention. So uh, care to share it with the class? It's not... A big theory. It's definitely <laughs> nothing in the way of research that Clara does on any level. I read an entire book for this one. <laughs> it was just, it was something small that I noticed that just stuck out to me. So in four nine, the monster just for some reason calls Penny Percy, and it could very well be that he was just being an asshole, <laughs> but. Could also mean something a little bit more because Percy is very famously a nickname for Perseus. Yeah, for Perseus. And yeah, and Perseus has a wife that is tied to a stone and are gonna be sacrificed to a god, but he saves her. And Mm. that's Andromeda. And I'm curious if it's just like a hint, hint that maybe Penny might take a Perseus role or maybe he is because I know that they've always hinted at travelers being more than just humans. Yeah, yeah. And then maybe potentially Julia, since they are the love, she is the love interest of him at this moment, being like an Andromeda. 
Yeah. Especially since she does get possessed by the sister. Yeah, at least uh, that's what we've had Heard spoiled many for times. us <laughs> in in interview. <laughs> yeah, this interview that has still not come to fruition. I know. It's so, I mean, part of me is wondering at this point if we're being pranked, but I also do feel like what, we're, what we've seen unfold in the last couple episodes leads in that direction, at least plausibly. <laughs> it does plausibly lead in that direction, but I'm just like, Honestly, like, I'm surprised that article was published because it's such a huge spoiler. Well, that's the thing, right? Like, I think a lot of, you know, the journalists don't know what's a big spoiler or not. (laughs) Um. No, yeah, not yet. But, like, you think that's something that would have been, like, ran through PR or or it might even have been something that Stella had mentioned, like, in wanting it to be cut. But it wasn't. I don't know. See, this is why this is why Casey asks us for a list of all the people we're talking to, so she can make sure that they don't spoil shit. Yeah, but anyways, I think that it's a good setup, and it could just potentially be that they're mirroring these characters, or it could mean that they are supposed to be these characters. Yeah, and you know, I think what gets me so excited um, about all of the mythology in the show is that, you know, even though we've been told there's like one thread that's going to weave through this and be more dominant, we're always mixing mythologies, right? Like Mm -hmm. there's always a mix of gods from different cultures and backgrounds. There's always a mix of sort of different ways that it engages with um, stories, uh, not just of particular gods, but like creation stories and destruction stories and whatever else. And I think like, was Mike the one who was saying that um, a lot of these stories appear over and over again in different mythologies, right? Like there's a great flood in lots of different mythologies. There are resurrection stories in a lot of different mythologies. There are. I mean, even with the tale that you told today, it's very similar to potentially like Adam and Eve even. Yeah. Yeah. There's like pieces of it everywhere. (laughs) And the Adam and Eve story is also like kind of a story of the first patriarchy. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And it, and it changes depending on which religion or mythology you're telling. Like there's so many different mythologies and different like takes on biblical stories. And yeah. Yeah. And I think like, You know, I mean, obviously it's great to be right, but I think over the course of this, the reason I keep having crackpot theories, even though I've been proven wrong, like demonstrably wrong on several occasions, is because it kind of doesn't matter to me if I'm right. Like, it's just really cool to see, to learn something about the source material, to learn something about these stories that exist all over the world. Um, And I love that this show, which I would be watching anyway, is really engaging with that and engaging with the sort of commonalities across um, those mythological cultures. Yeah, there's this really, like, there's this song by Bright Eyes. Um, Of course you're a Bright Eyes fan. (laughs) uh, I'm a huge Bright Eyes fan. Um, There's a song by Bright Eyes called Four Winds, which, like, their entire album, Casadega, is very, like, religious, and even though he's not a religious man. Uh Um, but there's a lyric in it that says the Bible's deaf, the corn's mute, uh, like 
but if you threw them all together, you'd get close to the truth. Mm. And I've always loved that lyric because it's basically saying like all of these religions are not necessarily wrong or right, but if you actually all like took them all, you might be closer to the truth because I, and I feel like that's just so like resonant with me because I've never been a religious person, but I don't necessarily like reject the idea of a higher power. Yeah. And for me, I think what I find so fascinating, right? Like I think there's so much power of, of storytelling of narrative, right? Like that's why we watch TV shows is because those narratives are powerful and they speak to us. But Mm -hmm. for me, as someone who is not religious, like in any way, except for that, I, I do some like socially Jewish things from time to time. Um, I think the the appeal of religion and of mythology is that these are stories that we've written to try to understand our world. And the commonalities to me are derived from the fact that like we're trying everyone is trying to explain the same basic set of things in the world, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's trying to explain how humans are the way they are, how the seasons work, how weather um, operates, all of these different things. And whether they're true or not, there's something I think really powerful about using stories to tell that, to make those explanations. What I love too about this season is I feel like it really like a lot of people have given Lev Flack for how he depicts the gods and especially Mm -hmm. like the whole storyline with Julia that unfortunately ends in her assault. But like he said, you, you don't mess with the gods. Yeah. You can't seek gods and expect nothing to happen. Well, and part of the moral of that story is that gods are fucking dicks, right? It's not that Julia even did anything wrong. It's that gods are fucking assholes. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I agree. I think we need to move on to fashion, though, as rich as this discussion (laughs) is. I could talk about mythology forever, but 20 minutes is probably the limit for most of our listeners. (laughs) Yeah, uh, it's great. (laughs) Theories are great. (laughs) Um, So for fashion for this episode, the first outfit I want to call out is Elliot's. And part of that is because he's wearing this gorgeous lizard skin cape, which is just such a perfect visual reminder that we're not really seeing Elliot, but this hallucination triggered by Margot licking her birthright lizard. Like, that is lizard Elliot. And I'm curious, like, is the birthright lizard, can it only speak? Can, it doesn't speak like the other animals of Fillory. It, only through can drugs. Can you only interact with it through, like, a drug-like interaction? Like, I don't know. And I kind of wonder, like, is this the only one we're going to see throughout the episode or throughout the season? Or is she going to, yeah. like, trip on Lizard again? Yeah. That would be interesting. Or is someone else? Someone else. <laughs> I can see Josh licking that lizard. I would like to see... Cupcakes. Oh, oh, definitely. Josh would be down <laughs> to lick the lizard. Um... <laughs> But I would like to see maybe more birthright boxes. Mm, yeah, yeah. Like, now that Fen is high king, is she going to get a birthright box? I don't know. I thought it was only for magicians. I don't know. We'll find out. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention, this is not strictly fashion, but in that same vein, 
Um, when Elliot is doing that first musical number, the Don't Get Me Wrong one, there's a filter mm-hmm. over the camera that replicates that snake skin or lizard skin texture. Did you notice that? Like, there's a lens flare and you see this, like... No! <laughs> it's so cool. I didn't notice that until the third time I watched it, but you should go back I'll and watch to, that scene for it. It's so good. I'll have to check it out. Um, were there any things... Like, those are the kinds of touches that I love in this... in the show in general. Um, we really need to get Magali on at some point because I just want to like pick her brain for hours. Um, but yeah, were there any other things like that that you noticed? Like maybe not about Elliot, but about other things in the episode? I don't think I did. I don't think I noticed anything crazy. Yeah. I think the only other thing like that I noticed was just that Barry was wearing a green dress. <laughs> Barry the leprechaun. <laughs> I... And 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 actually, you know what? I fucking love the leprechauns. Uh-huh. Like, I mean, there's only one in this episode, but I love it because I'm Irish. So it was really interesting. And I was like, finally, there's a Celtic god. And <laughs> finally, like, a leprechaun appears because, Well, you know. and I love that it's not, like, the stereotypical. Are not good. Like, and, and anybody yeah, that's actually Irish will know that. They are tricksters. Yeah. So I love that, like, she is a trickster creature that serves a trickster god. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. Um, That actress was super fun, by the way. I looked her up afterward. I couldn't find almost anything on her acting career, but she has all of these YouTube videos of her singing. Um, Nice. (laughs) Yeah. And they're adorable. They're, like, really, really cute. So highly recommend checking that out. She probably knows someone then, I feel like, to get it or just audition. I bet she just auditioned. Is she actually Irish? Is she like an No, Irish? she's Canadian. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, okay. I mean, she might have like Irish roots she or did, whatever. But she did the accent like pretty well. She so. did. She did a really great job. But yeah, I I couldn't even find like an IMDB page for her. So <laughs> I think this yeah. is early in her career. Um, but check out those YouTube videos. It's great. Um, okay. Yes. Fashion-wise, the other outfit I want to call out is, of course, Margot's. It's so rare that she's wearing anything that's, like, plain or workaday. And what I love about her outfit in this episode is that even though it's clearly function first, it's still very feminine and very Margot in some indefinable way. Hi, Dobby. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, still very feminine and very Margot. Uh, I loved her outfit. Yes. Yes. It's like... Country girl. I feel like in some ways it's something we would have seen Fen wearing before she became, before she married Elliot. I don't know if I could see Fen wearing anything like that beforehand. I feel like she was very feminine. Like, that might be probably true. Probably wore like dresses and. But just like it's something I'd expect out on a farm, you know? Yeah, that's true. Um, I just like, we. I mean, we don't really get to see her too much beforehand. Because it was more like a pantsuit, and, like, I don't feel like – it was more like a jumpsuit. But I don't think I could see Fen wearing that before she had met Margot. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, Maybe I something just, similar. Yeah. I just really loved that it – like, even though it wasn't high fashion the way that most of Margot's stuff was, it still felt very much in character. It reminded um, me of – like Princess Jasmine and what she wears when she's like pretending not to be Princess Jasmine. You know what it reminded me of, and I'm just checking to make sure I'm like checking really quick to make sure that I'm not just imagining this. 
It kind of made me think a little bit of, I mean, I think it was meant to be linen and light materials. Um, and so it makes me think of like a lot of other films that are set in a desert, like parts, it, it like a female version of the Lawrence of Arabia outfit. Um, I'm just glad she wasn't wearing like a slave Leia outfit or something. Oh God. Uh, (laughs) I mean, not that Margot couldn't pull it off, but. (laughs) Yeah. Do you have any other fashion notes? Anything about Julia? No, I think Julia for the most part is wearing what she wore in the last episode, but I did notice that Katie is wearing her old Katie outfit. So that's how Margot sees her. Oh, cool. Do you remember like what episode she wore that in? No, I don't know which episode she wears it in, but it's, like, old Katie. Yeah, like, season like, one or season two. Yeah, with her, like, hair all braided on the side. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She hasn't been doing that for a while. And I guess that's true of a lot of them. Like, Fen is definitely wearing a more princessy. I, You know, I think that Fen outfit might be the same as the one that she wore and the one where she announced her pregnancy. Mm. I have to go back and look. Yeah, and then Josh is definitely wearing an outfit. I know that I've seen him in before. (laughs) All right. Well, that seems like it rounds it out for fashion then, which means it's MVP time. Um, Normally, I'd go through like a whole song and dance to explain my choice. But Mm -hmm. honestly, it it just is summer for this episode. Like, Hale's an amazing singer, and a lot of those cameos are really funny. Um, I like Fen's energy, and uh, I like Britney's energy, and Jade's energy when they come in. Um, And, like, Jason and Stella are delightful, but for an episode like this, I just, it can't be anyone else for me, at least not in cast. Um, I, yeah, I really don't think you can give it to anybody other than Summer. Yeah, yeah. I loved what Sarah said. Did you see the tweet? I think it was Sarah's tweet where she said that Summer nailed yeah. her audition with a monologue monologue from like a Margot in the desert scene. Mm-hmm. I saw that. Yeah, and I just think Which this is like something that they had written so long ago. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I'm sure it wasn't anything that we saw in this episode. Like, I'm sure it's changed, but. This episode is such an ode to the complex and just complicated woman that Margot is. And I love that, like, that, that a monologue centered on those same themes is what got Summer the part because it, it just makes it clear how much Summer connects with that. Yeah. So we both agree that yeah. Summer's the MVP. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, episode ratings. I'm going to go first, just because I loved this episode so much, and I've been waiting like a million years to see Margot in the desert, and watching this episode was just, it was everything I wanted it to be, and more. I love the whole solidarity mm-hmm. among women thing with the spirits. I love that Margot, who is not one of the girls, is still such a baller feminist in this episode, and I lo- like what I said before, I love that the fairy eye is what enables her to help. And, of course, I love the music. I am a child of the 80s. Uh, I have a relationship to all of these songs, except for the Charles Barkley one. <laughs> um, and yeah, Because it was just, not 80s? <laughs> no, it's not the 80s. So I was not a small child when it came out. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it a big fat 10 out of 10. About you, Danny. I think I will also have to give it a 10 out of 10, but I'm not a big fan of 80s songs, so it was was a stretch for me. (laughs) The 10 out of 10 is based on just plot, then? Plot, acting, delivery. Um, I love everything else about it. (laughs) Everything except for the 80s music. (laughs) 
I don't like I mean I like the main song but like not like I don't I wasn't really super familiar with the first song with the Bridget um, one. yeah the beautiful dreamer song obviously isn't from the 80s at all and I like that song um it's more of a lullaby than it is anything else yeah. and yeah I didn't like the Gnarls Barkley song either but like honestly I think that they they could have picked a better um like 2000s song to put in there so <laughs> Uh, but that's just a personal choice. Um, but like everything else, and then and then just for me, it's like I like musicals, but I get tired of them quickly. So, mm-hmm. like for me, it's like that's not the best part of the episode in any way, shape, or form. But it will be if we ever have a musical episode where Todd sings "Just Can't Wait to Be King," right? Yeah, I mean, if they give me that, then I'll probably fully appreciate a musical moment. But hear that Sean (laughs) (laughs) all right um I think that takes us to the end of our show listeners thanks for joining us if you like the episode you can subscribe online wherever you get your podcasts and as always you can follow us on twitter or facebook at physical kids pod bye you gonna say goodbye (laughs) oh bye Mind slut. I can see Josh licking that lizard. Uh huh, uh huh. Mm hmm, mm hmm. Uh huh, uh huh.